something interesting in 2 Peter 1 that we're going to kind of uh, look at parallel. Forever who lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be, there will, will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. All right, let me pray for us, and I want to dive into what I want to talk about tonight. Let's pray first. Father, we do thank you that your word is a light into our path, a lamp to our feet. We thank you that you say to us that your word is able to to get down to the most innermost parts of of us, to see what motivates us, to see what uh, makes us afraid to see what drives us, to see the sin that flows from our hearts, and to rebuke us and to encourage us and to divide us, a double-edged sword to, to divide us and to show us those places where, um, where we are not wholehearted toward you, where we are divided in our hearts, where it's so easy for us to have idols that we serve. It's so easy for us to neglect uh, loving you and following you and obeying you. And it's so hard for us to let go of the things, uh, Lord, that you call worthless idols, but the things that are so real to us and sometimes even more real to our hearts than you are. So, Lord, as I, I pray uh, as we kind of think about tonight and we think about your word, especially this passage, Lord, that you would free us from those things. You would free us from the bondage to them. And, Lord, I pray that you would show us that you are our God and that you would show us and unpack for us what that even means. Your goodness to us, your faithfulness to us, your power to change the places in our lives where we never think we could change. Well, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So um, I don't, I'm not sure what your musical taste is, but one of the best albums that I listened to um, in 2013 was a, a, an album by the band Vampire Recon. And there's a song uh, on that album called Yahe. And it's a really, for Vampire, if you're familiar with them at all, it's kind of, one, it's their basically, uh, you know, every artist has their religious album. Dylan had his religious album. You know, every artist kind of has uh, a religious album. This is theirs. They grew up Jewish. They have this song, though, but they're, they're, they're agnostic, if I understand it right. And they have this song called Yahe that is essentially wrestling with the God of the Old Testament, essentially wrestling with Yahweh. And it's about sort of how he seems to hide himself and how he seems to hide himself and not reveal himself, but also speak these powerful pronouncing things that he wants these people to do. And here is the, here's how the chorus goes. It goes like this. It says, through the fire... And through the flames, you won't even say your name. Through the fire and through the flames, you won't even say your name. Only I am that I am. And then they ask this profound question, but who could ever live that way? And what they're saying is they're sort of saying they're looking at the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament. They're saying he seems scary and he seems aloof. And who could ever live by faith in that kind of a God? 
And that's a question that's very real for a lot of us. You know, a lot of us, there are passages certainly in the Old Testament, books like Leviticus, books like Judges, that are just really, how do we, how is that sort of compatible with Jesus? And what I want us to see tonight is in the heart of the Ten Commandments, which if we know anything else about them, it is what we could call the summary of God's moral law. Meaning, it's sort of the eternal sort of giving of what is important to him, what he loves, what he hates, what he wants us to abide by. And in the very beginning, something profound happens. Before he ever gets to the first commandment, he says something really profound. And basically what he does, we're going to get into it. He basically says, listen, before we get into what you're called to do as my people, I want to clearly remind you who I am to you as a father and as a redeemer. Another way of saying it is before, it's like God is saying to us and to them, before you can ever love me, before you can ever follow me, before you could ever obey me, you have to know in your heart and you have to know who I am and you have to know my goodness toward you and you have to know my love and faithfulness to you, which is why this is so. So basically what we're looking at tonight is, is the, interesting, the interesting thing about this order is God doesn't give them the Ten Commandments and then say, now if you keep these, this is who I'll be to you. He could have done that. He could have said, listen, here are the things that are most important to me and if you keep them diligently, then I will be your God. But that's not the way he does it. He says, that the, he says up front, I am your God. I'm Yahweh, powerful beyond, so powerful that, that I existed for everything existed, so powerful that everything the Bible says was created through the speaking of my word, and yet I am your God. And that comes first. You know, I love the way that Tim Keller says that. He says the gospel, basically we're looking at is the gospel is right in, in the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Because I love the way Keller says that, that, that sometimes we think religion sort of says, obey, then I'm accepted. But the gospel always says, and God always says, even the God of the Old Testament, you're accepted already, you're redeemed already, I've already brought you out of Egypt, you're already mine, therefore obey. So that's what we're looking at tonight. And I want to kind of look at it three different ways, uh, three kind of questions I want to ask. Uh, first, I want to ask what the good news is, because essentially what we're talking about is the good news that, that is really right in the beginning of this preface to the Ten Commandments. What the good news is, why the good news matters, and how the good news begins to change us from the inside out. Okay, so first, what the good news is, and I've kind of already said it, but let's get into it. Uh, so he says to them, he, he says two things to them. He basically says, this is who I am, and this is what I've done for you. This is who I am to you, the person of Jesus Christ, the person of, of who, the God's character, what he is, what he's like. And this is what I've done for you, his work. This is what I've done in your behalf. That's why he said, if you, if you remember Exodus, which we looked at last spring, he says to them before he, he parts the Red Sea, he says to them, he says, listen, you sit back and watch me work on your behalf. And that's what he does. And he's reminding them of the, both of those things. Another, word, another way of saying it, he's reminding them of who he is before he ever tells them anything that he wants them to do. And here's what I love about this, is that before God ever gave them the law, before God ever gave them the Ten Commandments, he gave them himself. He said, I am, your, I am the God, I am your God, and you are my people. Now, what's fascinating about this is Luther used to say, and this is something huge for us, and this is how, this is how actually I became a Christian, is this idea, Luther used to say that the gospel comes alive in the personal pronouns of the gospel. That when Paul writes in Galatians 2 and he says, Jesus Christ loved me, and he gave himself for me, and he died for my sins, the gospel comes alive in those me, me, my. Because the only way you become a Christian is that you see the me is, is you. You see that the me is, is what he's talking about you. Listen, part of the way I became a Christian is I, I'll never forget, uh, my, my, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and a pastor sat me down one time, and he explained to me in, in incredible detail Jesus' death on the cross. 
And, and he kind of went through it. And I, and I think I've shared this before, but he just went through how, how painful it was, how wrong it was, why Jesus did it. And the whole time I'm listening, seventh grade, Sammy, you know, seventh grade me is listening. But the thing that was missing was I didn't see that it was for me. I didn't see that it was my son that Jesus died for. I didn't see that Jesus so loved me that he gave his life for me. I didn't see that Jesus lived the life that I could never live and died the death that I deserve to die. And maybe that's where you are tonight. Maybe you're sort of, you grew up in the church. You're here at RUF, maybe because you feel guilty. Maybe you're here because you're trying to make parents happy. I don't know why you're here. Maybe you're here because you love Jesus and want to grow. Amen. Let's, let's do that. But the gospel comes alive when you see really what God says at the beginning of this. I am your God. I am Yahweh, but I am your God. Um, you know, it's been interesting. We, my, our, some of our closest friends in RUF just uh, about a year and a half ago adopted a child. And um, it was an African-American, uh, African-American child. And it was this beautiful process. But I didn't realize until recently my friend was telling me the story. And he was saying that when you go, and I don't really know much about adoption. Maybe some of you know more. But he said that the most powerful thing happens when you're actually in the court. And he says one of the most incredible pictures of the gospel he's ever seen is you're in the court. And the questions that they ask as you're about, as this child is about to become yours and take your name, uh, and, and the questions that are, they ask things like, will you cherish this child as if she were born in your womb? Like, really incredibly, like, this is the legal language around adoption. And he said something recently, uh, just as we were kind of talking about it, that, that really um, blew me away, because he was kind of comparing the way that that experience has really taught him what, when Scripture talks about this idea that we belong before we become. That's the, what we're talking about tonight. The good news is that you belong to God by his design, before he ever asks you to become like him. That belonging in the Christian life always comes before becoming. You already are in Christ before you can ever become like Christ. You already belong to God as his child before you can ever grow into the family likeness of what it means to be like him. And he says as he's thinking about these, these they're asking him these questions about the child that he, that he adopted, the little girl. He says that this is what he wrote to me. He said this, he said... It showed me that God doesn't want an adopted child. He wants his children and he gets them through adoption. And I love that because that's exactly what God is saying to his people here. He's saying, listen, you are mine and I've done everything necessary for your salvation and for your godliness and for everything. You belong to me. And that's, that's what he's saying. He wants them to know this. But that leads me to the second thing is why. So first, kind of what the good news. The good news is that before you can ever become like Jesus, you belong to him. Before you can ever become like God, you belong to him by his design, by his design. But the second question is why? Why the good news matters? And here's kind of what I want you to see is why does the Lord think it's, it's right and fitting to say this? Like, why do you think in the Lord's mind he says, I really, like, before I ever give them my commandments, I need to remind them of something that is so true and so they need to hear it. And I think the reason as you look at the story of Scripture and it's really you just look at your own heart, I think the reason God does that is because he knows how prone... Because here's the reality. The reality is they're not more than a couple of months out from like seeing the entire Red Sea parted. Like they're not more than a few months out of sort of seeing God do these incredible, powerful plagues. Just They're not far away from seeing God move in ways that are just were so tangible and so kind of incredible. Which is what so brings us to the first Peter, the second Peter passage. Because 2 Peter, 2 Peter, he's saying something, I think, similar. That something in our hearts, that we're prone to forget God's goodness. 
That we're prone to forget God's faithfulness. That we're prone to forget what God has done for us in our salvation. That's why we just sing. It's why, you know, my little girl, it's a, it's, I love my little girl for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is her favorite, like, bedtime hymn every night she loves Come Thou Found. Like, she wants us every night either me to sing it, my wife to sing it. Or the thing that I love about her is she's a little hipster baby because she likes the Sufjan, Sufjan Stevens version of it, which is a beautiful version of Come Thou Found. And uh, but she every night she wants to hear it. And the line that always gets me, which is I hope the line, if you know your own heart, that always gets you, is when we sing, "Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for Thy courts above." And what are we singing? We're saying, "Lord, there's something in me that, as much as You've done for me, and as much as I know You and I know what You've done for me, there's something in me that is so prone to not just forget it, but to, to just, just." To move away from it, to wander from it, and God, it's not like God, it's like that's a surprise to God. You know, sometimes I think as I kind of meet with you guys for coffee and as we talk about things, sometimes I just want to like remind everyone, it's not like it's a surprise to God that you sin. It's not like it's a surprise to God that you're prone to forget His goodness. You know, I had the most. My wife was just at a wise retreat this past weekend, and uh, the speaker, uh, Ricky Jones, is great. He's, he used to be our RF campus minister. But, you know, he said this thing that was beautiful as my wife's kind of telling me about what happened. He said, you know, sometimes I just like to talk straight to Jesus and just sort of tell him, you know, where I am, what I need. And he said he prayed in this beautiful way. He's a church planner. And he said he prayed in this beautiful way. You know, his church needed a huge amount of money. And he said, straight talk with Jesus, which I love that idea because sometimes we don't straight talk with Jesus. We just sort of like don't know how to pray. And, uh, And he says, you know, Jesus, I need you to remind me that you love me. And would you do that by providing what we need for this church plant? Like, so, super simple prayer, right? Like, Jesus, like, all of us should pray. Like, this is my prayer for this week. Not the money part. <laughs> that would be great. But the Jesus part. Jesus, I need you to remind me that you love me. And he prays it, and he says literally the next, within the week, the Lord not only provided exactly what he needed, but, you know, above and beyond. And we know that the Lord's love doesn't always mean we get what we want. We, we're, I hope we're mature enough Christians where we can put on our big boy pants and know, know that God can tell us no and still love us. If you don't understand that God loves you and can tell you no, then you don't understand the cross, right? Uh, you don't understand suffering and the hardness of life. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is forgetting his goodness. And what my friends and what the speaker's prayer was, was, Lord, remind me of your goodness because I'm so prone to forget it. I'm so prone to forget what you're like. I'm so prone to forget what you've done for me. I'm so prone to forget who I am in you. I'm so prone to forget what you've, what you've made me to be as your son or as your daughter. Um, one, of the, one of my um, favorite quotes, sort of thinking about this, because basically what this means is, Instead of living, you know, living our lives dependent upon and, and thinking about our relationship with God in terms of his goodness to us and for us, what we usually do is most of us are performance-based Christians. And we typically, and this is what God is saying, is we typically think about my relationship with God is dependent on how I'm performing with him. If I'm doing this, this, and this, and not doing this, this, and this, then God loves me. If I'm not doing the things I should be doing, and I am doing the things I know I shouldn't be doing, then how could God possibly love me? And most of us, it just, it's in our nature from the very beginning, from the garden, to think about our relationship with God, not dependent upon his goodness to us, but dependent upon our performance and our goodness toward him. And God is saying from the very beginning, you, if you live that way, you're going you're gonna to 
Either you're going to be a proud little a-hole or you're going to sort of be so depressed that you're going to kill yourself. Like that's where it either leads to pride or despair. And God from the beginning is saying, listen, I want you to know I don't love you because you're good. You're going to become good because I love you. Uh, here's what Jerry Bridges is in your handout there. I love the way Jerry Bridges says it. He's got a great article. If you wrestle with this and you have questions about this, you should read this article. It's called Gospel Driven Sanctification. He says it like this. He says, as I see it, the Christian community is largely a performance-based culture today. And the more deeply committed we are to following Jesus, the more deeply ingrained the performance mindset is. We think we earn God's blessing or forfeit it by how well we live the Christian life. And he goes on to say something incredibly helpful that I think is helpful for us. He says, basically, there are three types of Christians. Number one, here's the first type of Christian. Those who don't think they need the good news because they've never sort of majorly sinned. That's the first type of Christian. Those who don't think, because we're talking about forgetting our need for the good news. Number one, the first type of Christian is those who don't think they need the good news because they've never majorly sinned. Like, what does that mean? But you know, like, we define major sins. You know what I mean. Your youth group defined them. Like, your church defined them. But we don't think that we need the gospel because we haven't majorly sinned. Number two, here's the second type of Christian. The second type of Christian is those who don't think they need the good news because they're next-level Christians. So you're, like, serving in ministry. You're maybe in leadership in ministry. You're, like, being faithful in your sort of personal spiritual disciplines. You're sort of faithful in your church. You're sort of level up, next level, you know, Jedi level. Uh, I don't know what the Harry Potter equivalent would be, like Hogwarts, top of your class level Christian. You're like, yeah, I've gotten like a super Christian, X-Men Christian, (laughs) stretching for Lord of the Rings. I don't know, whatever you want to use. Next level Christian, right? So first, never majorly sinned. Don't need the good news. Second, I'm kind of a next level Christian. Basically, you think you're better than your Christian friends. Let's just be honest. And that's a lot of you. Especially if you're like in some kind of leadership ministry. You're like, yeah, I know what I'm doing, so let me speak into your life. Flannery Connor's got this great thing where she says, listen, no one should give anyone advice without fasting and praying 40 days in the desert before and after. That should humble us. Here's the third type, though. And I hope a lot of the third type are here. The third type is this. I'm going to read it from Bridges. He says, those who don't think they're worthy of the good news because they failed. And they failed Jesus. Because they have majorly sinned, or you've majorly sinned. Or because you've just burned yourself out, because you've tried, you've tried to live as a next-level Christian, and you like see your, the fakeness of it, and you're like trying to share the gospel with this kid, but like you don't yourself believe the gospel, and you're like, how do I... Burned-out Christians, people who, who think that the good news is not for them because they failed Jesus. And the good news of tonight is, the good news is for you. It's for all three of us. And some of us move through these phases. I, I feel like I've moved through all these phases. And I feel like sometimes there's an ebb and flow in these phases. But the good news is, is that God is still your God. And God is so committed to you that he's, that he's saying up front to you, listen, I want you to know who I am to you. I want what I, who I am to you and what I've done for you to become so big that that's what drives you doing, even living the Christian life. I want you to want to read your Bible because you want to know me. Not because you want to check it off a checklist and be proud and smug around your friends. I want you to talk about the gospel with this person in your class who doesn't know Jesus because you love me. And because I'm so big and, and, and so huge to you. Not because you feel guilty and want to check it off the box because you want to feel proud for your leader. You know, whatever reasons you do it. And he's saying, I want you to know who I am and who you are before you can ever live the Christian life. Before you, before you can ever keep my commandments. The, the book that kind of illustrates this for me is a book um, by Laura Hildebrand called um, Unbroken. And it's an incredible story about this guy who 
sort of survives World War II in these amazing ways. But there's a part of the story that I love where these essentially these POW, uh, World War II, uh, you know, they're POWs in Japan, I think it is. And there's this guy called the bird who sort of just is this crazy, like, abusive, just, you know, nearly kills them, has this incredible levels of torture that they're kind of living under. And this is as the war is happening. But there's a point in the war where they're on this, you know, as part of Japan, this remote island. And the news comes out that, you know, basically that, the, that America has won the war, that essentially the, this, this, uh, this prisoner camp, this POW camp is supposed to release these Americans. They're free now. And, and essentially these American planes kind of fly in and drop resources upon resources. There's a guy who's there. He's been, you know, in this camp for months and months and years and years. And he's talking, he's writing in his journal as he's thinking about it. They've been free. Like America's won the war. They've been released as prisoners, but they haven't yet kind of gone back to America and back to their normal lives. But the good news has come that they've been free, that America's won, and that they're actually now free men, no longer, you know, in bondage to the bird, no, no longer in bondage to this torture. And he writes this um, in his journal. He wrote this. He said, there's just one thing left to say as we bump down for the night. It's wonderful to be Americans and free men. And this is what he says that I love. And it's a might hard job even now to realize we're free men. And you see what he's saying? He's saying we've been so used to living as, as essentially you know, these prisoners, these slaves to, this, to the enemy. That it's, even though we know we're free, it's almost impossible to realize and live that way. And that's why God is saying up front, I want you to know that I am the Lord your God who has delivered you from slavery and bondage to Egypt. I want you to know that you are free in Christ. I want you to know that, that I've done everything to deliver you from that slavery, deliver you from that bondage. And I want you to know who I am to you. And that's the starting place. That's the starting place of even beginning to be able to walk with Christ. This leads me to the third thing. So first, why, what the good news is. Second, why the good news matters. It matters because we're so prone, we're so prone to forget his goodness. We're so prone to mix it up. And the last thing that you see, I just want to kind of apply it with you for a little bit, is how the good news begins to change us. So how does this idea of we belong to God, he redeems us, we're his, it's not a trial run. You know, that's what I loved about this idea of my friend in the courtroom with his daughter. Like The questions are like basically saying, this is not a trial run. This child is your child now. It's permanent. It's forever. It's not a trial run. But how does knowing and believing that we belong to him before we ever become like him, how does that begin to change us? And I want to sort of think two ways in this. I want to sort of look at how does it change us inwardly, and then I want to think about how it changes us outwardly. And that's always the pattern of Christian growth. Christian growth is always inside-out growth. It always starts at the heart level. That's why Jesus talks so much about the heart and the Sermon on the Mount. And it flows out of the heart, heart change, into outward, relational, horizontal change. So first think with me, how does it change us inwardly? And then think with me about how it changes us outwardly. First, inwardly. Kind of two things I want to think about. The first thing I want you to see is that believing this, that you belong, that nothing can change that you belong to him, that you're precious, that you're precious in his sight, the first thing it does is it gives you a confidence that's better than self-confidence. It gives you what we can call gospel confidence. Self-confidence says, self-confidence is driven by fear. I really don't like myself that much, and I'm really, I'm especially afraid either of rejection or failure. But I'm going to be the kind of person that puts on the proud front. I'm going to be the kind of person that, that makes people like him. I'm going to be the kind of person that, that puts on this picture that I have it all together. I'm going to be the kind of person that shows, like, I'm a man. Like, I could be in the GQ catalog. Like, I could be, you know, I could be, you name it. I could be 
this, this. Like, I'm a person. Self, and we know self-confident people are sort of, they're kind of, they seem attractive. But then when you get to know them, they're a little bit full of themselves. And this gives us a way better, a way, better way. Because gospel confidence, you're not full of yourself, you're full of the gospel. Gospel confidence is you're not confident because, you know, you're not putting in a, fra- a face of confidence because you're afraid of failure. Gospel confidence is you know even, in the, even if you do fail, the Lord is so big and the Lord is so good that he's going to use that failure in his plan for your life. Do you want to know the most sort of beautifully, humbly confident people in the world? Are people that believe God is good to them, people believe that God loves them, people that believe that no matter what happens... Even their worst struggles, their worst fears, their worst failures. That God is so good that he's even going to use those for their good and for his plan for their life. And, you know, over the summer, sort of, one of the psalms that became so sweet to me was this, the psalm where it says, the Lord, will, the Lord will fulfill his purposes for me. And I love that because it's saying, listen, I can trust the Lord with my life. And that's where, that's where confidence comes from. I can trust the one who has so loved me. That he gave himself for me. I can trust someone who so loves me that he's over all things. And he's not going to, you know, I love the way that, I love the way that Elizabeth Elliot says, the Lord will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. I love that line. The Lord will not protect you any, from anything that will make you more like Christ. But the confidence comes from knowing that even the hardest, worst, most painful failures and struggles, he's going to use to make you more like Christ because he loves you and he's good to you. Real gospel confidence. But the second thing I want you to sort of see inwardly what this does for us is it doesn't just bring like this humble boldness, this humble confidence, but it also brings a peace that is like real peace. A peace that knows that I am right with God. A peace that knows not anything that I've done can add, can make me right with God, but that he has done everything in my behalf to make me right with himself. That's why I love when we say, REF is not a place for you to come and hear what you must do to make yourself right with God. REF is a place to come and hear what God has done through his son to make you right with himself. And this is where I want to read this quote that's been huge for me. This idea of who God is to them, what he's done for them. There's a, an old uh, uh, Puritan guy named Horatius Boner, which is an unfortunate name and a, for a lot of different reasons. But um, he has the most beautiful, talk about the peace of what God has done for us. And, and he, he, here, let me frame it for us. He's sort of, uh, it's from his book called the Everlasting Righteousness. And he's thinking about, he's imagining if you think about an Israelite, you think about an Israelite amongst the sacrifices. And he's envisioning this, this Israelite who's full of fear because he's not sure if he did the sacrifice in the right way. And that's where he leaves us. I'm just going to read it for us. It's long, but it's so worth it. This, is, this changed my Christian life. I hope it changes yours. He says, What should we have said to the Israelite who, on bringing his lamb to the tabernacle, should puzzle himself with questions as to the right mode of laying his hands on the head of the victim? And who should refuse to take any comfort from the sacrifice because he was not sure whether he had laid them aright or in the proper place, in the right direction, with adequate pressure, or in the best attitude. Should we not have told him that his own actings concerning the lamb were not the lamb? That's huge. And yet that he was speaking as if they were. Should we not have told him that the lamb was everything, his touch nothing, as to virtue or merit or recommendation? Should we not have told him to be of good cheer, not because he had laid his hands on the victim in the most approved fashion, but because they had touched that victim, however lightly and imperfectly, and thereby said, let this lamb stand for me, answer for me, die for me. The touching had no virtue in itself, and therefore the excellency of the act was no, uh, was no question to come up at all. It simply intimated the man's desire that his sacrifice should be taken instead of himself as God's appointed way of pardon. 
It was simply the indication of his consent to God's way of saving him by the substitution of another. The point for him to settle was not, was my touch right or wrong, light or heavy, but was it the touch of the right limb? The lamb appointed by God for the taking away of sin. The the quality or quantity of faith is not the main question for the sinner. That which he needs to know is that Jesus died and was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. This knowledge is life everlasting. This is what I'm talking about. The personal pronouns of the gospel. That your faith is not in your faith. Your faith is on God's work on your behalf through Jesus Christ on the cross. And even the, I love the way Sinclair Ferguson used to say, even the smallest faith still has the smallest, weakest faith still has the same strong Savior as the boldest, biggest faith. And part of what God's doing is when you believe the preface, when you believe, here's who I am to you, you belong before you become, you have peace. That it's not about what you're doing, it's about what he's done on your behalf. And here's the second thing. So how does that how it change, begins to change inwardly? We could talk a lot about a lot more things. But then think with me for a second about how it begins to change us outwardly. There are kind of just two things I want to sort of say that, that I think begin to change us the way that we, we change us outwardly. Here's the first. That if it's true, if we really believe that you belong before you become, this means two things. On the, way it, on the one hand, it means you should be a kind of person that's easy to be friends with. Are you the kind of person that can easily be friends with people from all different kinds of walks? If you're not, the gospel and the good news has not begun to take root in you like it should. Because if it's true that you, you belong to God before you ever did anything, before you could ever do it, you know, this is what First John says, that it's not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his, gave his son as the atonement for our sons. Before we ever loved him. That we belong to him before we ever become like him. Are you the kind of friend that's easy to be friends with? Here's the second question. Are you the kind of friend that has an inviting disposition? That doesn't make people need to feel like they need to change to be your friend? That doesn't need, doesn't need to make people feel like if they don't believe the same thing that you believe or are all, all about the same thing that you're about, you can't ever be friends. Christians should be the easiest people in the world to be friends with. Because we just sang it. He sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. To be a Christian is to befriend strangers. Because you were a stranger. And God befriended you. And God loved you and gave himself for you. Are you, the, are, you, are you loving the people around you in that same way? Where your heart is saying to them, you can belong. We can be friends, Christian or not, before you ever become anything like me or anything like the Lord that I serve. Um, here's kind of, I'll close with this. Um, so this idea of belonging before becoming. There's a, a scene in the movie Annie that I've always loved. And there's a scene where, if you know the story, Annie's been adopted by Daddy Warbucks. And um, there's a scene where she, when she first comes to Daddy Warbucks' house, where she comes and she, she doesn't understand quite what's happened yet. She doesn't understand that she thinks she's kind of come to serve and be part of the servant staff at Daddy Warbucks' house. And so she gets there and the hostess of the house where says, Annie, you know, here's Daddy Warbucks' house. Welcome to the house. What would you like to do today? And Annie, without really understanding what's happened, says, well, I think I'll start with, like, washing the windows. And then I think I'll start with, like, scrubbing the floors. And I think I'll start with, you know, and the husband says, no, no, no. I meant, what would you like to do today? You understand that all this whole house belongs to you. Like, any part of it, any meal, you know, any toy. What would you like to do to enjoy your father's house? 
And I love that scene because every time I think about it, I think that's us in the Christian life. And I think this is exactly why the Lord is saying this part of the Ten Commandments before he even gives us the commandments, which we're going to look at in two weeks, the first one. But he's saying, do you understand that before you could ever do anything for me, that you're mine, that I love you. I love the way C.S. Lewis says it. He says, listen, Christians don't think God will love them because they're good. They think that God's love will make them good. And the question for you tonight is, do you, do you belong? And does your rest and, and genuine... Because the question for you and for me is, if you genuinely believe that that's how you belong to him, so secure in your relationship and in his love for you, if you genuinely believe that, what would it begin to change in your life? What would it begin to sort of undo and unravel? And what would it begin to kind of build up and encourage? And that's a question for all of us. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, I pray that even for myself, that you would take um, tonight, take these words, take um, the passage we looked at. And Lord, we, we do pray, I, I pray, that you wouldn't let these words, your words, fall on hard soil. That you would really, even as we leave from here... Let them, you know, water these words. Let these words take root in our hearts. Let these words, that are your words, begin to really change us from the inside out. Um, Lord, especially this idea that, that we really, um, who we are and who you are to us, coming before what we ever do for you. Lord, you know that we're so prone to mix that up. Uh, Lord, it's so hard for us to even say the word grace because on the one hand, we think it's too good to be true. And on the other hand, we don't really think we need it. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are in both places, or even those of us who are in a place where we don't think we deserve it, we think you couldn't be that good, Lord, that you would really melt our hearts, that you would break up our hearts in healing ways and begin to to root your truth and root your gospel in them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.